to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll put a Bible in your hand marked to the passage that we're studying today. That way you can read the Bible and, uh, and then hear the teaching of the Word and uh, have double the impact. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Paul, by the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he said, Brethren, he's writing to the Christians in the church at Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, and this is speaking of the Jewish people, not the land of Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things, those things, shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith, which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is uh, over all, is rich to all who call upon him. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words, familiar words to many of us, and um, well, we're just stunned to even read that final verse, that whosoever calls upon you can be saved. And we just stand before you today in awe of your provision to us, how wide you have made the invitation that men and women like us could bring all of our sins and all of our brokenness and all of our need and come to you and be received as a son and a daughter and provided with salvation and the glorious righteousness. We're in awe of it, Lord. Not just the words on the page, as marvelous as they are, but the reality of all of this experienced within our life. We bless you from this place today, Lord, for your goodness to us in your Son. We pray for every single man and woman that stands before you in this room or the fellowship hall who is trying to earn their salvation or establish their righteousness on the basis of their works, that today you would blow all of that up and bring them into the beauty and the simplicity of the salvation that is true and the one that you have provided in your Son. And we pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that the method that Paul uses in writing the book of Romans is a, a method known as diatribe, in which is he writes this letter to a, a literal church that existed in the city of Rome made up of Jews and Gentiles some 2,000 years ago. As he's writing the letter, he has his audience in mind, and, uh, and he's very familiar with both Jewish thought and also with Gentile thought. And he's thinking about the impact that what he's writing concerning uh, the, the theme of the gospel, which is the theme of the book of Romans, is impacting his audience. And so it's almost as if he has a single individual sitting in front of him and he has a sense for the impact that it would be having upon an individual or an entire congregation. And he anticipates the questions that might pop up into their minds as they're uh, hearing what it is that he's written. And then he proceeds to 
uh, present those questions and then the answers to the questions. And it's a powerful, powerful method in, in teaching. And as we've seen in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul's focus is upon the Jews. And he is very conscious of the fact, being a Jew himself, of how those first eight chapters of the book of Romans would have impacted them uh, specifically and, and how it would have provoked questions within their minds as they think about this gospel, this salvation that's been provided to Jew and Gentile equally on the same terms. And the questions that would have come to mind would be questions as we've seen like, uh, does the fact that God that we're God's chosen people not apply to us anymore? Or what advantage is there to being a Jew at all if God's going to treat Jew and Gentile exactly the same? Or why is it that there are so few Jewish Christians in comparison to uh, Gentile uh, Christians? Or is God uh, completely through with the Jewish people as a nation and as a people and if he is, then what about all of the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled that he promises he's, that he's made to the Jewish people and to Israel as a whole that remain within, within the Scriptures? And in chapter 9, uh, Paul addresses the question specifically, as we saw last time, how is it that there are so few Jews who believe in Jesus as Messiah and Savior uh, in comparison to the Gentiles? And the bigger question on the mind, a uh, Jewish mind related to that, is that does this represent a failure on God's part toward the Jewish people uh, because this is so? And as we saw last week, Paul concluded chapter 9 by declaring essentially that Israel's uh, general refusal to accept Jesus as their Messiah, their failure to trust in Him as their Savior, was not due uh, to some failure or some lack of faithfulness on the part of God. It wasn't due to some fault of uh, the Gentiles, but rather that it lay completely in their refusal to abandon their own righteousness and accept the righteousness that comes only through of faith in Jesus. And as Paul then broaches the subject in chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, now as we come into chapter 10, he's going to unpack it a little more thoroughly in the verses that we've read. First, by enlarging upon the single great cause, I mean the absolutely catastrophic ignorance behind their determination to establish their own righteousness, their own right standing before God. And then second, he uh, declares to them and us the solution to their unbelief. And so Paul begins with an affirmation in verse 1 of his uh, love for the Jewish people and of his desire for their salvation. And as we saw as he began chapter uh, 9, he begins with this great uh, speaking of his love for the Jewish people and uh, encouraging them and that he, he wants them to be saved, that he, that he prays uh, for them toward uh, that end. And so we see his love, we see his sensitivity to his audience, all of it fully on display, a tremendous spiritual maturity, of course, in, in the Apostle Paul. What Paul is about to do is that what he is in chapter 10 here, in these verses that we looked at, he is about to expose the single great error, the single great failure in the thinking and the doing of the Jewish people concerning the most important thing in their life, and that is their relationship with God. And because he's going to do that, he begins by affirming his love for them and that, again, they are the objects of his prayer and his desire that they would be saved. If you've ever been in the kind of situation where you have had to sit down with someone concerning some great uh, blind spot in their life that is making their life 
a shipwreck, but they can't see it. And you realize that when I sit down and I talk to them about this area of their life, it's going to be like a bomb has gone off in their life. I'm going to reach into the very core of where they live, and what I'm going to speak to them has the potential to be so powerful that it will be disorientating in their, disorienting in their life. And when you're going to sit down with someone, and I mean, there they are, they're right across from you, you know what's going to happen within the next five minutes to them. And what it means before you head into this great subject, this great ignorance in their life, to, to make sure that they know, I am talking to you because I love you and because I care about you. And, and I want the best for you. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul uh, does for them. You notice that before he heads into his uh, confrontation with them here in verse 2, he affirms them in something that was a, a positive in their life. For I bear them witness uh, that they have a zeal uh, for God. And when Paul comes in and he finds something to compliment them on, uh, this is so he's completely in line with Jesus himself in this regard. You may be familiar with Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And in five of those seven letters, he has to correct mightily uh, great problems that are occurring within that church. And in each case, he's not always successful, but in each case, he endeavors to find something good about them, something good that they're doing to affirm in their life before he heads into major correction. And Paul is simply following the model of Jesus. And of course, if, if any of us have been in this particular situation in talking with someone, we already know the wisdom of that kind of an approach into somebody's life. And when he declares to them, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, and Paul uh, could bear witness, personal witness to it, because he had possessed the same zeal for God before becoming a Christian in terms of being a Pharisee himself. He understood what they were thinking about, what they were zealous uh, for, however misguided it was. And then, of course, he was a, bore witness to their zeal for God in that they persecuted him continually. All of his uh, salvation life throughout all of the three missionary journeys that that. Uh, he conducted on the Lord's behalf. And in verses 2 through 5, Paul then t identifies the single great obstacle to their salvation. To Jewish people then and to Jewish people to this very day. And do you notice verse 2, he tells us that though they possessed a zeal for God, he affirms that, he grants that, that their zeal was not according to knowledge. In other words, they possessed a great zeal for God, but that zeal for God was not directed by a full knowledge. It wasn't directed by a fully formed uh, and informed knowledge. And so as we'll see in a moment, their zeal as a result, as would always be the case in that kind of a situation, was misdirected. I don't know if you've noticed, but the culture and the world that we live in right now is crazy, and it's going crazier by the week. But it's an interesting thing to look at how more and more irrational uh, decision-making becomes, or how irrational even uh, major uh, subject matters are, are assessed at, at, at all, and the basis upon which decisions are, are being made. And, of course, the culture that we uh, live in is highly politically correct on not just the political level, but all the way uh, across uh, the board. And, of course, you can never say that uh, dogmatically that something is absolutely right or something is absolutely uh, wrong. This is all taboo in the current uh, environment, and the idea is that it doesn't matter really what you believe as long as you believe what you believe sincerely, as long as you believe in it uh, strongly enough. And so in our culture, the main thing is to believe in something. 
It doesn't matter what you believe in, only that you believe in something. And believing it is the main thing, not what you believe or whether it's worthy of your belief or worthy of your faith. Uh, or, uh, and, no, and virtually no examination of, of the worthiness or the, or the rationality of, of what we believe. And of course, this is so mainstream now that nobody blinks at it any longer. You can have, uh, even recently, a major company like Nike make, uh, launch its latest ad campaign with a slogan, believe in something, even it means sacrificing uh, everything. And the idea is that it doesn't matter what we believe, only that we sincerely believe it, uh, but the problem with that is that it doesn't hold up. It hold, if you want to live inside your head, it'll work. If you want to play games in your head, it'll work. But it doesn't hold up on a practical level anywhere in life. You would never hire an engineer or an architect to build a skyscraper for you who possessed great zeal but was not knowledgeable about their zeal and, and not knowledgeable about their field. No one would ever say in the interview process, listen, my supreme desire in hiring you is your zeal. Nobody would have an, an, an interview related to that. The interview, the entire interview would be focused on, will you build this building according to code, uh, according to established truth, according to facts and, and, and truth? And the same thing is true not only of an architect, not only of an engineer, but we expect the same thing of a surgeon or a pharmacist or a plumber or a car mechanic. We may be concerned about their zeal, but never supremely, always secondarily. Zeal is wonderful if it is well-directed and it is well-informed. But if it is not well-directed and it is not well-informed, it can become a danger to everyone. Zeal's wonderful, but only if it's attached to something worthy of it. And that something is knowledge that something is truth as opposed to a lie or self-deception. Well, why isn't zeal or sincerity enough? Because we all know from personal experience, if we've lived long enough, and from watching the experiences of other people, that it is entirely possible to be absolutely sincere about something and discover ourselves to be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is only as good as uh, the object that we are putting, uh, our, uh, basing our sincerity on and, and directing our zeal uh, through. If you want to get on the highway and drive to Turlock and you head down to Pennondale and you head down to 99 and you go north towards Sacramento, you will never get to Turlock. No matter how zealously you drive, uh, it, it, because your zeal has to be properly directed. And nowhere is it more important that our beliefs and our zeal be directed by full knowledge, by right knowledge, than in spiritual things. Tremendous damage can be done by an ill-informed, zealous surgeon or plumber or car mechanic or architect but it pales in comparison to the damage that can be done when it enters now, as Paul is addressing it, concerning spiritual things. Because the other consequences are as bad as they are, they are only temporal. Concerning spiritual things, the consequences are eternal. And notice that Paul then identifies this single great unknowing, this single great ignorance that represented the single greatest obstacle to the Jews becoming saved. In verse 3, he said, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. That is, that the righteousness, the right onness, 
the rightness that is required by heaven that, that they are ignorant of is the righteousness that is required by heaven is perfection. That's the righteousness that is required to be able to enter into the glory of heaven one day and to be accepted by God in a relationship with God. The, uh, the huge and, and really indescribably tragic mistake of, uh, that the Jews had made concerning the law of Moses and, and this mistake that they had made concerning the law of Moses was on steroids by the time of Jesus' incarnation and his public ministry. But the, the, the great uh, mistake was that the Jewish religious leaders had turned the law of Moses into something that God had never intended it to be. They had hijacked Judaism, and they had hijacked the law of Moses and made it into something God never intended, namely that a person can be saved by keeping the Old Testament law, and that they, they, that they taught that a person could establish their own righteousness, their own rightness, their own right standing before God on the basis of good works, on the basis of keeping the law of Moses. And the problem with that interpretation of the law of Moses, in addition to what Paul already laid out in Romans chapter 4, and that is that Father Abraham was declared righteous by God on the basis of faith 430 years before God ever gave the law to Moses. Anyone that had a cursory understanding of the law of, of, the, of, of the Old Testament would understand uh, this. But the great and glaring problem with that interpretation of the law as a means of righteousness is that no one can be saved and make themselves acceptable by the law of Moses or keeping the law of Moses for the simple reason that no one can keep the law of Moses. Only Jesus has ever kept the law of Moses. And when Jesus, in the most famous sermon in his life that he gave, the most well-known, the Sermon on the Mount, very early in that sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he declares to this audience that is before him, For I say unto you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the most zealous adherents to the law of Moses and, and, and it and the furthest along of anyone in the nation of Israel of trying to work their way to heaven on the basis of keeping uh, the law of Moses. And anyone that would have heard Jesus say that in that Sermon on the Mount would have then asked the person next to him, excuse me, but did you just hear the door to heaven slam shut on all of us? And Jesus was simply communicating that entrance into heaven can never be gained through good works or human effort. Even by the most religious person, the most zealous religious person, the most serious religious person, or the most sincere religious person. But that it only occurs by receiving the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life that becomes ours solely on the basis of putting our faith in Him. And the Apostle Paul wrote concerning the true purpose of the law, Galatians chapter 3. He said, what purpose then does the law have? It was added because of transgressions. And then further in that same passage, he declares, but the Scripture has, speaking of the law, has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith that would afterward be revealed. And therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor or under the schoolmaster. And one of the purposes of the law is to expose every single human being 
as a sinner, as being less than perfect, and by virtue of being a sinner and less than perfect, we are unacceptable in and of ourselves for entrance into heaven. And if anybody wants to argue that assessment by God, all anyone has to do, any of us in this room, uh, I dare you, but you never do it publicly, is to take any of us, take our lives and to lay them up against the perfection of those 613 laws that made up the law of uh, Moses. And if anybody were to try and and attempt to, to do that, those laws would reveal every single one of us to be broken and to be bent and to be crooked. If you've ever done like, done like a home improvement project, some of you, it's your field to be in construction and all, but if you go to like a, whatever kind of place where they've got the cheapest lumber and you just need four two-by-fours or something, and you go over and you go through the pile and it's the cheapest wood, and you just hope you can find one straight one. And, uh, I mean, I've gone through like eight layers down on the pallet, throwing them off to the side, and uh, it's job security for whoever has to clean them up afterwards. But, <laughs> but you, you hope you can find one two-by-four that's straight, and then once you got it there, you just put all of the other ones up against it. And uh, this one's bowed like crazy. This one's bent in a non-bowing fashion. And, and that straight two-by-four exposes everything else to be bent and to be crooked. And the law of Moses does the same thing in our lives in a spiritual way. And it condemns us. It reveals that we have absolutely no hope of getting into heaven ever or establishing a relationship with God on the basis of our own uh, righteousness. It exposes us to be sinners, to be less than perfect, and already uh, disqualified for a works-based salvation. That's why Paul wrote earlier in Romans, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was never given as a means by which we would keep it and be saved, but to expose us as sinners. And why is that important? Because a person has to know that they are a sinner in order to see our need for a Savior. And that's what the law does. Why would I give a Savior any thought at all? Why would I give a Savior or a message of a Savior any serious consideration at all unless something in the world makes me aware of my need for Him? or my need for that salvation. And the law of Moses does that. It exposes us all as transgressors. And this is why the law is likened to a tutor or to a schoolmaster by Paul. The schoolmaster teaches us something. And the great lesson that the law of Moses teaches us uh, is all day, every day, it just communicates to us that you are a sinner. You are less than perfect. You are fallen. And as a result, don't even try to begin to earn your way into heaven. You are desperately in need of a Savior. And in this way, the law of Moses keeps me from ever fooling myself by thinking that I can uh, make myself acceptable to God by my own effort. And once I realize how deeply sinful I am, how deeply broken and bent that, uh, that, that I am, and uh, 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 then, th- then it forces me to then look for a right standing before God based upon something other than the law of Moses. And that in turn then pushes me to a faith in Christ. And once I put my faith in Jesus for my salvation, Paul writes that the law has finished its job in my life. You notice how he says there in verse 4, Paul put it this way, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The key word is the word end. It doesn't just mean that it doesn't apply to us any longer. The word end also has the idea of termination. By... when any individual becomes a Christian, 
then the, the, what the law of Moses is, is the, it, it is terminated because it has brought us to the whole purpose of the law. The whole purpose of the law is to not get us to become focused upon the law and think I can get into heaven by keeping it, but it is to bring me to Christ. And once it has brought me to Christ, it has done its job. It has delivered me to the very person that it was given to mankind uh, to accomplish within, within our lives. And the reason that putting, and so now the, and the reason that putting my faith in Christ as my Savior and as my Lord is the end of the law of righteousness is because when I put my faith in Christ, then at that moment the Bible teaches that the perfect righteousness of Christ is put to my account by virtue of my faith. He kept the law. He possesses a perfect righteousness. And the righteousness that heaven requires becomes mine not by works. That's an impossibility. But it becomes mine as a gift from God to us, something that comes with His Son. And now for the rest of our lives and our eternity as Christians, God looks at me in terms of my suitability for heaven, and when He looks at me in that regard, He does not see my unrighteousness, but He sees the very righteousness of Christ that has become mine because of my faith in His Son. Paul spoke about this already when we were in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and declared, For he, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's what happens now. When we put our faith in Christ, a righteousness we could never earn now, God takes and He gives to us as a gift. Paul teaches very, very clearly uh, here in verse 3 that any attempt to establish my own righteousness, my own right standing before God based upon works, he said it reveals an ignorance, an ignorance concerning the only righteousness that is acceptable to God, an ignorance concerning perfect righteousness. Because once a person realizes that perfection is the standard and that each of us have already fallen from that standard by virtue of our sin, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as Paul declares, now we begin to look for a Savior outside of ourselves and outside of the law. And the Holy Spirit will then lead such a person to Jesus because Jesus alone is the Savior who can save us from that sin. Elsewhere, Paul wrote under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, then truly righteousness would have been by the law of Moses. And what Paul is declaring there is important. He's, in other words, he says, if the law of Moses cannot qualify a person for heaven, a law that was given by God Himself, then certainly no other religion in the world or nor the keeping of their laws can ever even remotely provide a person then with a righteousness that can qualify them for heaven. If the law of Moses couldn't do it, no other religious law can or religion can. Now in verse 5, Paul makes it clear that if you're determined to get to heaven on the basis of works, then this is the way. You want to get to heaven on the basis of the works? Law of Moses is your best bet. I mean, if, that's, if that's what you want to do, uh, it, then, and you're going to work your way there, uh, then the law of Moses, all it'll take is just a 100% perfect adherence to the law of Moses. And again, the problem which Paul is making uh, here is that no one can do that. 
No one but Jesus has ever kept the Ten Commandments. No one in the world has come remotely close to keeping the Ten Commandments, let alone the other 603 that constitute the law of Moses in addition to the Ten Commandments. James wrote and he said, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all because he's short of perfection, which is the required standard. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul, on the same subject, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, and he's talking about all kinds of Jewish religious leaders here. You want to be under the law? You want to be under the law as a, a means of working your way to heaven? You want to turn the law on top of its head and turn it from the very thing, away from the very thing that God intended it to do, and that is to convict you of being a sinner and then to drive you to Christ, and now you want to make it a competition with Christ and make it a means by which we can earn our way to heaven? He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Have you ever read the law? Have you ever read the Torah? Have you ever read the 613 commands? Because nobody could read the 613 commands and ever come away and have any hope of keeping that as a means of righteousness. Again, it's possible for the religious man to be an ignorant man and to be ignorant in the one area of life in which he considers or she considers herself an expert. And these people thought they were expert on God and religion and salvation. And belief in a works-based salvation, any attempt to establish my own righteousness before God as the foundation for our salvation and as a foundation for our relationship with God, Paul says, that is a mark of a profound and catastrophic ignorance. The ignorance of the single great fact concerning righteousness, and that is the, that the righteousness that God requires is perfection. Now, Paul doesn't leave us there, thankfully, but he moves on then to tell us how to achieve the salvation that's found in Christ, and with that salvation to receive a righteousness uh, from God that we could never otherwise know. You notice in verse 6, he is essentially communicating that salvation is not far uh, from us. He says, uh, but the righteousness of faith, uh, of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down uh, from uh, above. So salvation isn't something that's distant from a single person in this room or a single person in this world. We don't have to ascend into heaven by some legalism or some effort or some, you know, uh, heroic uh, extraordinary self-effort or some kind of high belief in myself in order to try and secure salvation, to prove God that I'm worthy of salvation. And, and the reason that salvation is not, true salvation is not far from any of us, Paul is saying, is for the simple reason that God sent His Son into the world in His incarnation in order to provide us with that salvation. Salvation would be impossible for us to attain the gulf between earth and heaven. Not that's on a physical realm, but on a spiritual realm is infinite. Nobody could bridge that, that gap at all. But God bridged the gap in sending His Son. No need for all of this religion. No need for all of this human effort. No need for all this crawling and these chanting and all the bells and all the incenses and all of the different things that people put themselves through or the high standard that they put themselves under to try and make themselves acceptable to God. It's a waste of time because we could never bridge the gap between us and God, and there's no need to. God has brought salvation close to us in the sending of His Son into this world. John wrote, and he said, for the Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And in verses 6 and 7, as Paul is uh, quoting here, as he goes on in verse 7, and he says, and who shall descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from uh, the dead. And then into uh, verse 8 here. What Paul is doing is he's quoting a passage from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 30, verses 11 through 15. Allow me to read it to you. He said, for this commandment, Moses speaking to the children of Israel, for this commandment which I command you, talking about the law of Moses that he is, is commending them to, he said, of this law of Moses, it is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the, words, the, the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And what Moses was saying to the children of Israel was, you didn't have to go anywhere to find this law of Moses. You didn't have to climb up into heaven to get it. You didn't have to cross the sea in order to get it. God brought his word to you. And what Paul is doing here is Paul is making, saying the point that Moses made about the law of Moses that it could not come to them by human effort, but it came to them as an act of God's grace, that what was true of the law of Moses is also true regarding salvation and true about the gospel, that God has brought it to us. We don't need to work to, to produce it or to provide it to mankind. He's brought it to us. And and Paul goes on there as he speaks in verse 7 and in verse 8 telling us it's not far, verse 6, not far from us. And then in, in verse 7 makes the point that it's not too difficult to receive. Nobody has to cross a sea in order to be saved. Nobody has to go down into uh, some kind of an abyss in order to find salvation or in order to uh, uh, earn the salvation. So you have the two kinds of religious people. You've got the one kind of person that looks at it and, and, and is still uh, self-confident in some kind of a supreme way, and I'm going to make myself good enough for God, a relationship with God, good enough uh, to get into heaven and they put these schemes and devices, and they throw all of their zeal behind it, and they begin to climb this, uh, this ladder that may take them up six feet to try and bridge a gap that's 10 million miles. But the one person goes at it from, from that uh, side of things. There's the whole, whole heroic uh, effort that is behind it. And then he talks about uh, the abyss here. And you've got another kind of person who looks and says, oh, you'll never get to heaven on the basis of that. Maybe a completely different personality type. And they say, no, no, the way to please God is, to, I mean, is a self-humiliation, a flagellation, uh, a, a denial of self and a groveling down and going and, and being the proverbial worm, not in the eyes of God, but in your own eyes. And somehow, if we can burrow down low enough and, and, uh, and prove by our humility that we're worthy of, of salvation from God, then there's a whole group of people that go in that direction. And the religions of the world are uh, uh, one or the other a combination of both. Paul says a sinner doesn't need to perform great feats for God in order to secure salvation. No need to descend into hell in order to bring Jesus up. And why is there no need to descend into hell to bring Jesus up? He's already resurrected. All the things that everybody's trying to earn, everything that everybody's worrying about, God has already taken care of. He has sent a Savior from the glory of heaven itself into the world. And here he and and then the Savior has come into the world and has conquered death, and has come close to us by virtue of His resurrection. There's no need to go high. There's no need to go low. Just to simply receive the gift that God has has given uh, to us. Paul continues to draw in verse eight from. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30 in declaring that salvation is near to everyone. It's even in our mouth and in, in our hearts. In other words, this salvation is just a prayer away. And again, when he talks about in verse 8 there, at the end of it, he talks about the word of faith, which we preach today. Word of faith is a phrase that's been co-opted by the prosperity teachers, but that's not how Paul uses it here. When he talks about the word of faith, he's talking about the gospel, to receive salvation on the basis of, of, of faith and God's invitation to man to do so. And you notice in verses 9 and 10, it gets very specific for us on how to receive it. He says in verse 9, he said that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, it begins with confessing uh, Jesus as Lord within our lives. And the first thing here is the acknowledgement of Jesus as deity. And the, Lord, the, the word there is, it, 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 it speaks of Jesus as deity. In other words, uh, th there are people who look at, at Jesus and they say, well, I believe he was a great teacher. I believe he was a good man. I believe all of these things, but I don't believe that he is divine. Then you have a Savior that can't save you. To be saved, we have to believe that it was God who died upon that cross, God the Son, for our sins and was the satisfying payment for our sins. And to, be, and to trust in Christ for salvation isn't to trust in the Jesus of our making or our accepting what the Bible reveals about him or not liking other things. He is perfect as he's revealed in the Scriptures. That is the only Savior who can save us. And to believe him to be divine. Because if he is not divine, he is not sinless. And if he is not sinless, he cannot save. He would need a Savior himself. And so it's important for us to know who it is that we're putting our faith in is a Savior, none other than the very Son of God. And then Paul here in, in verse 9, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, it has the idea of there being an, a, an actual surrender to His Lordship within my life. It isn't just a verbal saying that this is who He is in history, and I accept that as a fact, but now I come and I yield my will to Him. I surrender to Him. I cease to be the Lord of my life, and I make Him the Lord, uh, him the Lord of, of my life. As Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And then for the person that doesn't like what that sounds like, Jesus continues uh, with the, the option, the only option to that, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you notice in verse 9, we are to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We are to commit our lives to Him, to trust in Him for who and what He is, and then with the belief that Jesus has risen from the dead. And of course, the resurrection of Jesus was the crowning act in the three greatest acts of human history, and that was the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus was, was following his death and, and, and his burial in, in providing mankind with a, with a gospel. That resurrection is God's stamp of approval upon everything that Jesus was, everything that he taught, and, that, and the confirmation that his death was and is the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And he tells us in verse 9 that in doing so we'll be saved. He gives a slight elaboration in verse 10, talks about, uh, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. In other words, this confession that we make to God in trusting in Jesus for who He uh, is and then uh, and, and believing in, in His resurrection, that this is to be more than just an intellectual acknowledgement. Uh, of the truth of all of this, that the demons understand all of this about Christ. They understand all of it is, is a truth about Him. But it, it is the, when with, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, here is the committing, the surrendering of my entire life uh, to Him. And, and additionally, it means that this, this commitment isn't purely emotional. 
but it is to trust Jesus as my Savior out of my will. I have chosen to do so, and I, I, have, I have done so with, with my heart and, and, and then with, with my mouth. And with the mouth, so, uh, confession is made unto uh, salvation. So again, this is more, th this, is, this is not only believing this to be true about Jesus, about salvation, uh, not only believing it in my heart, but there is a, a point in our salvation experience. Confession, we're, all, we're saved on the basis of faith alone. Uh, and so he moves confession in here in the sense that any of us who have ever trusted in Jesus as our Savior, it's involved what? A confession. A confession to God. It's called a sinner's prayer. God, I believe your assessment of me, that I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life, every day of my life. I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. And I believe that you sent your Son because you love me so much into the world in order to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins. And so in this moment in time, I do that. This moves from the realm of me just knowing it in my noggin. I make a decision to make Jesus my Lord and my Savior. So there's a confession element in, in all of this. And then Paul closes very powerfully in verse 11 by declaring, as he said, for the Scripture says, whoever believes on him, uh, that is Jesus, will not be put uh, to shame. And uh, quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, and declaring that no one uh, who ever puts their faith in Jesus for salvation will ever be uh, ashamed for having uh, done so. And, uh, and uh, as, as he speaks there, uh, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Everything that God has promised to us as Christians will come to pass as we'll do it, and, and, and everything that is ours in Christ will never be ashamed of it, of that decision, not in this life or the life to come. I, I, my life has tested the promises of God, maybe not in, in as extreme a way as many, many people alive in the world, but it's, it, it has tested God, His promises, His faithfulness, the sureness of His salvation, the firmness of His grip upon uh, my life in terms of peace and in terms of joy, all of these ways, every way that I've known and the devil has known to try and test these things. And I'll tell you, I'm not ashamed yet of that decision. It's the best decision I've ever made, and I know you feel the same way too. And in verse 12, he says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile for the, same, uh, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. In other words, the, the, everyone needs to be saved, Jew and Gentile alike, and God shows no favoritism in that regard. And He closes it not only with verse 12 talking about everyone's need to be saved, but then He talks about the fact that everyone can be saved in verse 13. For whoever, what a wonderful word that is, calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And that word, whoever, is a priceless word to someone who understands themselves to be a sinner. And people, I can't tell you how many times through the years, as a pastor, as a Christian, people complain about the narrowness of Christianity in terms of salvation. And... Uh, Jesus, after all, did declare concerning Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, singular. And then in case people didn't understand that, He went on to say this, and no man comes to the Father but by Me. And He didn't wince, and He didn't back down, and He didn't apologize. Why? Because it's the truth about salvation. And what matters about salvation is not narrow or broad, but what is true. And this is the truth about salvation. Is it narrow? Absolutely it's narrow. But at the same time, it is also important to understand that though it is narrow, it is never exclusive. Not one human being in the world is excluded from walking through that narrow way into salvation 
by trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I can't speak for anyone else in the world, but when I got done with all of my numbskull ideas and decided that I was going to turn to God and, and this is the truth and this is the way that I'm going, it never entered my mind to complain that there weren't two, three, or four options. I was thankful there was a way. I mean, doesn't that, shouldn't that, doesn't that humility fit us a little bit better than this other arrogance of demanding what we want or ten ways or who in the world do we think we are? I'm thankful there's one way. And when I stop and think about the price that was paid for that one way, I'm thankful God provided it and that he brought it near. I know this is familiar territory for many of us, but it isn't for everyone. And the fact of the matter on this issue of righteousness and this being ignorant concerning God's righteousness, if this was taught in every church in the entire world on a monthly basis, it, it wouldn't be too often because the overwhelming majority of the world's population is religious. It is, not it is not atheistic, and it is not secular. And among that great majority of, uh, of religious people, the overwhelming majority of that population are engaged in a religion that teaches them that they can find a right standing before God on the basis of being good or doing good or on the basis of works or belonging to their religious system. And the sheer number of people today who are living under the same profound ignorance that Paul addressed in the Jews ignorant of the perfect righteousness that is required for heaven that none of us can ever hope to possess on our own, but is found solely in putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and to be qualified then to begin a relationship with God and one day enter into the glory of heaven. It was to an extraordinarily religious man, an off-the-graph religious man, that Jesus spoke the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16, to a man by the name of Nicodemus. And he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever uh, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I can't change the world, and you can't change the world. And I can't talk to the whole world about the righteousness that God will accept and the ignorance of, uh, uh, of not understanding the only righteousness that God can accept. But the only thing that I can do is what I've tried to do here today, and that is to tell you the truth on that subject, that this is where the righteousness of God is found. And if you'd like to receive that righteousness, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship with Christ wherein all of these things are found. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray and we pray for every single person in this room, in the fellowship hall, and wherever that there is even the slightest trust in human works or human effort or human goodness and, and the deep and profound and catastrophic ignorance that is behind that belief. And I just pray in a powerful way that you do by your Holy Spirit and in a, and in a gentle way, but in an unbudging way, Lord, in every heart that is trusting in someone and something other than your son, that you would just blow all of that apart and then bring them to you today, Lord, in the simplicity that you have provided to us in Christ. Those of us who know you already, Lord, we thank you so much for a way. Thank you for the way. And thank you for the incredible 
work of your Holy Spirit and of your grace and of your patience through long years in our life to bring us to that place to finally look at him and put our trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and then to find a relationship with you on top of everything else. We thank you this morning from this place for our Savior. We are deeply grateful for him. And we thank you, Lord, in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.